This is the Apex United Methodist Church podcast. So one thing I love about this time of year, this season of Christmas time, of Advent, is how much it interrupts our normal life. Like once Christmas time rolls around, we do things that we normally wouldn't do. Like put a tree in our living room. Or pull out a Christmas movie and spend a rare evening watching one of our favorites or stop listening to our, our favorite podcast or favorite music and instead turn on non-stop Christmas music. This season interrupts our normal routine of life and that interruption is what makes Christmas time so special. And after all, our life sometimes needs interrupting. In Your Light Gives Us Hope, which is the daily devotional that we're reading together as a church, Anselm Groom teaches us that the earliest theologians often described the human condition as one of drowsiness. We are easily lulled to sleep by the rhythms of our life. We get comfortable in life as we know it, even if we don't like life as we know it, we get comfortable in our life, and we drift off into a state of drowsiness where we don't pay attention to our souls and we don't pay attention to God. So sometimes our life needs interrupting. Sometimes we need something or someone to wake us up. So I invite you now to hear these words of scripture from Matthew chapter 3 as I read to you of John the Baptist who was sent by God to God's people as a wake-up call. Hear now this reading. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all the region along the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. People flocked to the wilderness to see John the Baptist. They traveled miles and miles away from their safe, comfortable, drowsy hometown to see this wild man. And boy, was John the Baptist an interruption into life as they knew it. He did not live as others did. He lived in the wilderness while others lived in their villages or towns with their extended family. John the Baptist didn't eat fresh bread and lamb as other people did. Instead, John the Baptist ate locusts and wild honey. He didn't wear woven tunics as normal people did. John the Baptist wore rough clothing of camel's hair. Nothing about John the Baptist was ordinary. Nothing, especially his message. He was the one whom the prophet Isaiah foretold when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He was the one who would prepare people to receive God, and that's what his message did. John the Baptist called people to wake up, to wake up to the reality of brokenness within them, to wake up to their disconnectedness with God, to wake up 
to their sin. Now, sin is one of those church words that means different things to different people. So today I'm going to talk about sin by drawing on the wisdom of Augustine, who was a 4th century theologian and probably one of the greatest theologians in our church's history. Augustine taught that sin is disordered love. He came to this definition because he looked around at the world and he knew that everybody wanted to be happy, but he realized that many people were miserable. Why is this so, he wondered. And as he studied and prayed and observed, he concluded that our unhappiness is because our loves are out of order. You see, the heart of Augustine's understanding of human nature is that we are what we love. You are what you love. Your life is shaped not so much by what you think, by what you believe, or even by what you do. Your life is shaped by what you love, because what you love shapes how you think and you believe and what you do. You are what you love. Think about it this way. We've heard the phrase, you are what you eat. This doesn't mean that if you eat broccoli, you're going to turn into broccoli, right? What it means is that someone who craves broccoli, someone who just longs for broccoli, is going to be a different person living a different sort of life than somebody who craves deep-fried Oreos, right? So in the same way, what we love, what we long for, what we desire, defines our behavior and it shapes who we are. You are what you love. So building upon this understanding of human nature, Augustine taught that sin is disordered love. It's when our loves are out of order. And, and he's not talking about, about who you love here. He's talking about the order in which you love. Augustine said that our loves have a right divine order to them. And sin happens when we love the less important things more and we love the more important things less. In other words, sin is when we prioritize the wrong desires. So what does that look like? It looks like this. You can love your job. It's a great thing to love your job. But if you love your job more than your family, then your love is disordered. You can love having money and means to do good things, but if you love wealth more than justice, your loves are disordered. Jesus taught us in his life what the greatest commandment is. He said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he said the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Anytime we do not do these two things, our love is disordered. Anytime we love something more than God, our love is out of order. Anytime we love ourselves at the expense of our neighbors, we sin. Our loves are out of order. And sin, loving out of order, causes brokenness and suffering and pain in our lives and the lives of those around us. Sin also causes a rift between us 
and God. So John the Baptist was in the wilderness calling people to wake up. Wake up to the disordered love within their hearts. Wake up to the rift that they have between them and God so that they can repair it. And how? How are they called to repair this rift with God? John the Baptist says that you can repair this rift by repenting, by repenting of your sin. Now, this is another one of those church phrases that means different things to different people, and it may carry some baggage for some of us. So let me explain what I mean when I say repent. Repentance is not a full of saying, I'm sorry, and swearing to never do something again. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which translates to the transforming of the mind. Repentance is when we wake up and we realize that our love is out of whack. Repentance is when we wake up and we see rightly that we are prioritizing the wrong thing, that we are not loving God first and our neighbor as ourself. Repentance is when we wake up and realize that our loves are out of order. And the act of repentance is twofold. First, it's asking for forgiveness from God and maybe others who we have wronged. And second, it's reprioritizing the love in our hearts. It's transforming our mind to love rightly. We turn our hearts away from whatever it is that we're chasing before God, and we turn our hearts back to God. John the Baptist called people to repentance, and he baptized them as a sign of their commitment to love God above all else. But something happened while John was out by the River Jordan, baptizing and proclaiming this message of repentance. Some Pharisees and Sadducees came to the riverside, and that's when the story gets really interesting. Hear how the story continues now in Matthew chapter 3. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn in unquenchable fire. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Now, as you can imagine, you brood of vipers was not a polite greeting. Why was John so harsh? Why was John so rude to the Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, let me tell you a little bit about who they were, about the, how they functioned as a group of people. The Pharisees and Sadducees were the religious authorities. They were the leaders. 
They were the elite of society, and they safeguarded the laws and the traditions. And they had a lot of power. They had a lot of power over the people, and they often misused that power to do spiritual damage to God's people, to exclude them from worship, to make it impossible to follow God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are a case study in disordered love. Later in Matthew, a whole chapter is devoted to Jesus condemning the Pharisees and Sadducees for their disordered love. Jesus also calls them a brood of vipers. I'm going to read to you pieces of this chapter so you can understand the kinds of things that Jesus laid into them for. Here now from Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, so that the outside may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, inside they are full of the bones of the dead and of all kinds of filth. So you also on the outside look righteous to others, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Do you see how Jesus is calling them out for their disordered love? They love their rules more than they love their people. They love their power more than they love God. They love their appearances more than they love the state of their souls. They are a case study in disordered love. And that is why John calls them out at the River Jordan. They weren't there to genuinely transform their hearts and lives. They weren't there because they genuinely wanted to repent, to learn to love rightly. They were there for the sake of appearances. They were there maybe to size up their competition. And John makes it very clear that God doesn't care about their appearance or their status in society, that God cares that their heart is in the right place. You see, God cares about our hearts. Not that we are without fault, but that we are genuinely trying to love God and love our neighbor. John tells us, don't count on your heritage to save you. Don't count on your credentials. Don't count on how holy you appear. Bear fruit that proves your repentance. Bear fruit that proves you are loving God and loving your neighbors. Show by your actions that your heart is focused on loving God above all else. Because, John says, because the time of reckoning is coming. This is a strange text to read two and a half weeks before Christmas, is it not? 
We don't want to hear about judgment and repentance and trees being cut down in unquenchable fire two and a half weeks before Christmas. But this Advent, we are following the lectionary, which is a three-year cycle of scripture readings that many traditions follow, including Methodists. And this is the appointed text for today, which makes us ask, why? Why does the lectionary give us John the Baptist in Advent? Well, on Monday, it was Cyber Monday, and I'm a working parent of two small children, so all of my Christmas shopping happens online. So I was up late into the night ordering gifts, as I'm assuming many of you were, when you look at how much was spent that day. And I was just adding things to the cart, just going through my list, doing all the shopping I needed to do without even thinking about why. About why we purchased gifts. Why this matters. Where God is and all of that. And as I was studying John the Baptist this week, I had my own wake-up call. I realized that this holiday, this season can be a time when we just get sucked into the shopping and the parties and the decorations and the cookies and those traditions that we have grown up with, all of which can be really good things, but we just get sucked into it and lulled into a comfortable drowsiness when we don't have to do the hard work of preparing our hearts for God. So John the Baptist is our wake-up call. This week, John the Baptist was my reminder that I can just skate through this festive season loving the less important things more and inadvertently loving the more important things less. Like my time with family or moments of quiet prayer or opportunities to love my neighbors who don't find this time of year so jolly. John the Baptist's message is a wake-up call for me to remember what I am prioritizing and why. Because that is how I can love rightly. That is how I can welcome God into my heart day in and day out. Christians have learned through the centuries that the best way to stay alert, to not succumb to the drowsiness that leads to disordered love, is to build into our routine habits of interruption. Habits of interruption can be anything that causes us to pay attention to God, to pay attention to the state of our own souls, to pay attention to what it is we are really longing for, what it is we are really chasing after with our love. One such habit of interruption that Christians have practiced for many years has been passed down um, from the 16th century, and it's called the examine. It was given to us by Ignatius of Loyola, and it has been practiced for over 500 years as a way to help Christians love God with all their heart and to pay attention to the state of their souls. So I'm going to share this process of examine with you so that you can take it home and practice it during this season when you are tempted to get lulled into the drowsiness of the holidays. So the examine begins with a moment of centering yourself in God's presence. 
It begins with a posture of gratitude. When you give thanks to God for all that God is doing in your life, for God's love for you, and you recognize, you take a moment to recognize that God is with you. All of the time, God is with you, and sometimes we just need to center ourselves in that presence that is with us. So after you center yourself in God's presence, that's step one. The second one is you pray for the guidance to understand how God is working and acting in your life. Invite God to open your eyes and your ears to speak God at work. Because when we're lulled into the drowsiness of life, we forget that God is working. So we pray for God to show us how God is at work around us. And then the third part of the examine is the review of your day. You recall the specific moments and how you felt throughout the day. This is the heart of the examine. James Martin, in his book, The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, describes this portion of examine this way. He says, think of it as a movie playing in your head. Push the play button and run through your day from start to finish, from your rising in the morning to preparing to go to bed at night. Notice what made you happy. What made you stressed? What confused you? What helped you to be more loving? Recall everything. Sights, sounds, feelings, tastes, textures, conversations, thoughts, words, and deeds, as Ignatius says. Each moment, he tells us, each moment offers a window to where God has been in your day. Some people find it helpful to journal this. Others are just content with prayerfully walking through their day with God. So after you um, review your day, the fourth step is to reflect on what you did, said, and thought throughout the day. Were you drawing closer to God, or were you turning away? Were you loving God above all else, or were you chasing after another desire? Were you loving your neighbor as yourself? Spend a few moments analyzing your day and then ask for God for forgiveness for those places that you have turned away. And maybe ponder who else you might ask for forgiveness from. And then the last step in the examine is to look toward the next day. To think about how you might collaborate with God more effectively. How can you reorient your desires so that you can love God well? How can you refocus your heart so that you can love others well? Be specific. And remember that God's grace goes with you. And then finish with the Lord's Prayer. So these are just five steps that you can do anytime, anywhere. They're so simple, and yet they're so important to a robust life of discipleship. Because when we take the time to reflect and examine our hearts and our lives, that's when we can hear John the Baptist's voice interrupting us, waking us up from our drowsiness so that we can know life that is truly life, so that we can be transformed into the person that God created us to be. So before we leave this place, and go back into our busy, bustling world, I'd like to spend a few moments in silence. In these moments, perhaps you want to walk through the exam in a little bit. Perhaps you just want to relish a moment of quiet. 
But in these moments, I invite you to go with me to the metaphorical River Jordan and listen, listen for God's voice, crying out from the wilderness of your life, crying out for you to wake up, wake up and return to God.